Okay, <clears throat> so out of a uh, concern for time, uh, I want us to go ahead and get started today uh, right off the bat. Uh, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. Uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 7. If you have not been uh, with us uh, for the last several months, uh, I know that we have several guests in the room. I'll just give you a quick update about what you should expect to, to see from Mercy Hill. Obviously, you've already heard us sing together. Uh, we love celebrating the way that the Lord works in our lives, and so we share this testimony. Uh, but now what we're about to do is open up what we believe is the written Word of God, which is the Holy Bible. And so uh, if you don't have a Bible of your own to use... You can uh, take one of the ones, there's many that are under the seats here in the sanctuary, and you can take that with you. But Luke chapter 7, uh, we've been going through this book of the Bible, which is a first-hand eyewitness account of the life of Jesus that was written to a guy named Theophilus so that he could be more certain of the things that he had heard about Jesus. Okay, And that was the whole purpose this was written. And so we have been slowly at a good, solid pace going through this book, asking the same questions. How can I be certain of this event in Jesus' life? How can I be certain that this happened in history? And how can I know how it applies to me and to my life? And today we come to Romans, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 7. And we're looking at verses 1 through 10. So let me read it for us. It says, after he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Our lives are governed by uh, formulas, uh, simple recipes where if you put this together and this together, you end up with this, where you, if you want to receive a desired result, you need to do these things to arrive at that. Like For instance, uh, if you want a good cake that uh, you bake to bring here uh, for our potluck after, after service today, you need to follow directions. If you leave things out, it's not going to be a good cake. You need to put all the directions in. But there's other things in our life too. Like if you, if you want to get control of your finances, uh, there's a simple formula that you need to follow. You, in a month, you need to spend less money than what you make. If you're constantly spending more money than what you make, you're, you're not going to have a hold of your finances. Your finances are going to have a hold of you, right? Uh, but there's other things too. And so like uh, if you want to lose weight, the simple formula for losing weight is that you need to 
use more calories, you need to burn more calories than what you bring in to your body. Um, and it's a simple mathematical formula. If you continue to add more than you spend, you're going to continue to add, right? And so there's these simple formulas in our life. And I think what we're going to look at today and what we're going to find today in this passage is a simple formula that addresses the issue of how can it be that you receive God's mercy? How is it that you can experience the mercy of God in your life? And just to kind of give it away, I think that the simple formula that we can see today is this, is that if you approach God with humility, and if you ask in faith for God's mercy, He will give it to you. That's the simple formula. And so let's look and see how we arrive at that formula in this passage. This ear thing is driving me nuts. Nate's ear is the weirdest shape that you could ever imagine. No, it's your ear, Nate. All right. So let's, let's kind of walk through our passage and see if we can determine uh, what it is, uh, how, how we arrive at this formula. How is it that can I, I can approach God with humility, and how is it that I ask in faith? Okay, so let's look again at verse 3 together. It says, when the centurion heard about Jesus, okay, so stop. So Jesus has just gotten done preaching a sermon that we call the Sermon on the Mount. And he's come down off of this mountain, and he's starting to go through this city called Capernaum. And Jesus, in his ministry at this point, is very popular. He's been performing miracles, and he's been teaching audacious things that nobody has ever been willing to say before. And so when Jesus is coming to town, everybody knows about it. And so this centurion hears that Jesus is coming and he has a problem that he needs Jesus to solve and he knows that Jesus can solve it. And so it says, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation. And he is the one who built us our synagogue. And so we're in this situation here where these Jewish elders have been sent by the centurion to ask Jesus to come. And this is a really curious situation. It's curious because you've got to know the history between Israel and Rome. They weren't exactly friends because Rome had conquered Palestine. The Romans were the, the occupiers of this territory that Israel believed God a long time ago had promised to them, and it was theirs alone to have. And so it would make sense that these Jewish elders would be unwilling to do this thing for the Roman centurion. This Roman centurion, he was a Roman military officer. A centurion, if you want to think of it like this, you know, a century is like 100 years, we think. And so this centurion was a Roman officer that had 100 men under him, under his authority. It would make total sense for these Jewish elders to completely blow off this request. But they don't. They don't. They're actually willing to complete it for him. But we see from the text, it's not just this willingness to complete a task for this guy that has a lot of authority and soldiers under him that he could send to attack your people and to oppress your people. Because we see they don't just accomplish this task. They're actually advocating for the centurion on behalf of him to Jesus. They're, it's, they're trying to convince Jesus to do this. And they say, Jesus, he is worthy of you to do this for him. 
And he says it's because he has a great love for our people. And he has been generous to us. He's the one that built us our synagogue. If you perform this simple exercise like I did this week, and you come up with a list of the people in your life that you would describe as being humble, and that's like the first word that comes to mind when you think of this person, I guarantee you that a few other characteristics are going to be there for that person as well. I guarantee you that they're going to be a person that is also genuinely loving towards other people. And there's clear evidence of that. But they're also probably going to be a person that is sacrificially generous towards other people in their life. Whether that's giving of their money or giving of their time. People who are humble tend to be very loving and very generous. And that is exactly what they say of this man. And so they say to Jesus, Jesus, this man is worthy for you to do this. And that's what they have to say about him. But let's see what this centurion has to say about himself. And so these elders of the Jews in verse 6 are apparently able to convince Jesus to go with them because it says in verse 6, And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, Jesus, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. So on the one hand, you have these elders of the Jews that are advocating for this man, saying, Jesus, this man is worthy. And they're saying all these great things about him. But on the other hand, when the centurion has an opportunity to make his own case before Jesus, he says, Jesus, I am not worthy. I am not worthy for you to come into my house and to spend time with me. Why the difference? Why would this man say that about himself? Is he lacking self-esteem? Like, is this guy, does he have an emotional problem that he needs to take some medication for, that he needs to, to go and see a doctor over? Like, is, is that an issue? If we were to sit here and I were to ask you uh, how you would define humility, a lot of you would probably say that when it really boils down to it, humility is having a healthy, accurate view of yourself, right? It's, it's healthy and it's accurate. It's not a view that is overinflated, right? And you think more of yourself than what's actually true, but it's also not underinflated where you are constantly self-loathing, right? We all know people on both sides of that spectrum, don't we? We all know people that think way more of themselves than they ought to think. These are like the Tony Stark Iron Men in our life, right? That they are awesome and they know they're awesome, so they make sure that you know they're awesome too. We all know people like that, but we also know people on the other side of that spectrum, the Eeyores in our life that are, woe is me, woe is me. And they're always a problem that's going on in their life that they've got to tell you about. There's always an issue. They always feel like they are, they are doing the wrong things and that they're causing all these problems in other people's lives. We all know people like that too. The reality is that those people are filled with just as much pride as the others because it's always about them. They always want the eyes on them. And so is it the case that this centurion does not have a healthy humility about him because he sees himself as so lowly and unworthy even to be in the presence of Jesus? No, I don't think that's the case. I think what the case is is that he actually has an accurate view of himself not in comparison to other people, but in comparison to Jesus. 
The reality is there's always somebody that's going to be worse than you. There's always going to be someone that's committed sins that you haven't committed. There's always the people in our lives that we see as, man, that person's a drug addict. Or that guy's a deadbeat dad. Or I know, I've talked to many people in my life. I'm not talking about somebody in this room, but I've talked to many people, you know, and you probably have too, where they're talking about things and you're like, you know what, man, I just, one thing I can't stand is a liar. Mm, can't stand a liar. Or I, you know what, I can handle a lot of faults in people, but when somebody's a thief, mm-mm, can't stand a thief. And of course, when people say that, they're at one time saying, I can't stand thieves, and I'm not a thief, and I'm not a liar. Right? They're asserting that about themselves. But the reality is, if you're constantly comparing yourself to other people and how good you are in comparison to other people, there's always somebody that's done something that you haven't. At the end of the day, there's always mass shooters. At the end of the day, there's always Adolf Hitler that you can back up on and say, I'm pretty sure I haven't caused a mass genocide. Therefore, I am a good person. And you can live your whole life like that. If you compare yourself to the wrong person, when you start comparing yourself to Jesus, all of a sudden, who you truly are is brought to light. Think about it like this. We have many people in this room, and let's say we held a competition for uh, who and the winner of this competition got to play in the Super Bowl game of this, this last Super Bowl. Who won the last Super Bowl? The Eagles, very good. This will tell you just how much I don't care about football. I had to look that up this morning, okay? The Eagles won the Super Bowl, but I know this. If you win the Super Bowl, that means that you are the best of the best, right? It's like, that's, that's as far as you can go. That's the biggest game you can win, right? But let's say that we held a competition in here today, and the best one of you in this room that was able to prove you were the best football player, you got to play in the Super Bowl game with the Eagles, you might be the best person in this room at football, but when you step onto the field with that team, you realize that you are not good at football. It doesn't matter how good you are in comparison to the people behind you. What matters is how good you are in comparison to the people ahead of you. And that's exactly what happens when we are compared side by side and when we come into the presence of Jesus. It doesn't matter what other people have done. What matters is what you've done. Have a healthy view of yourself. When the centurion said that he's not worthy for Jesus to come into his home, he's asserting two truths at the same time. On one hand, he's asserting, Jesus, you are worthy of honor and glory and praise because you are perfect and you are God. And at the same time, he's asserting a truth that is saying, I am completely unworthy to be in your presence because of my dirtiness would tarnish your glory. That's what it means to be unworthy. And this is a very common response that we see in Scripture when people encounter God in light of their own sinfulness. Let me give you a couple examples. In Isaiah chapter 6, it's a famous passage where Isaiah has this vision of going into the temple and there's these angels crying, holy, 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 right? And they're all kinds of crazy, and you know, they're flying, and it's like burning everywhere, fire, this giant altar. And what Isaiah says in that situation, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, 
the Lord of hosts. Isaiah enters into the presence of God and immediately realizes his own sinfulness. And he says, woe is me. In Matthew chapter 3, so that was Old Testament, now we're New Testament. In Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist, when he's talking about Jesus, says, He who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. John says about himself, I am not even worthy to touch the dirtiest part of this man's body. Think about back then. Back then, you're wearing sandals. There's dust everywhere. There's dirt everywhere. People don't take showers every day. People might not take showers every week. They're actually not taking a shower at all. They're probably bathing in like a river or just getting some water and splashing on their body or something. Your feet would be absolutely disgusting. You think feet are gross now? They were disgusting. They're walking on streets that are filled with dirt and dust and animal poop. It's nasty. Washing the feet was the job of the lowliest servant in the home. And what John says about himself is that I am not worthy even to accomplish that task for this man. That is how lowly I am in comparison to him. So ask this question, how is it that you approach God when you come into his presence? Here's some diagnostic questions for you. As you were preparing this morning to come here, maybe as you were getting ready, getting your food ready, or as you were driving into this place, or as you walked in, as you were singing the first song, as we were praying together, was the thought that was on your mind, God, I pray that today is the day you work in this person's life because they need you so bad. God, I pray that today is the day you would convict so-and-so person of sin in their life because they need to repent? Or was your thought, as you were preparing to come here this morning and walking into this place, God, would you accept me a sinner? And would you reveal to me new areas of my life that I have yet to begun to begin to follow you in obedience? God, would you reveal something to me today that I've yet to realize about who you are so that I can glory in who you are as my God and my King and I can worship you? You see, one of those is focusing on the sinfulness and fallenness of other people and the other one is focusing on your own sinfulness and fallenness and need of God. But there's a third category. Maybe you weren't thinking of either of those things. You weren't really concerned with what God could do in other people's lives. And if you're honest, you're not really concerned with what God can do in your own life. Instead, you walked through those doors this morning completely indifferent to what God was going to do. And all you're thinking about is what's coming after this. You're thinking about the game to watch or to go to. You're thinking about the busy week ahead. You're, talking, you're thinking about the chores that there are to get done at home. You're talking or you're thinking to yourself about eating the food that's going to be delicious today. And your mind isn't here on the things of God and the ways that God is going to work in your life. And your life in general is spent treating the things of God flippantly as if they don't matter. What a dangerous place to be in to treat the king of glory indifferently with no opinion with no desire whatsoever. Isaiah 66, 2 says, But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. 
That's why the first part of this formula for receiving God's mercy is to approach him with humility, with an absolute brokenness over your own sin and realization of your need of him. But it doesn't end there. There's another part of this formula that we need to experience God's mercy, and that is asking in faith. And so let's pick back up again in our passage in verse 7. <clears throat> the centurion, this is the message that he had sent to Jesus when he was close to his home. He says, Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. It's revealed in this that the centurion's desire and goal in sending people to meet Jesus before he got to his house was not just out of humility, it was also out of a deep, deep faith that Jesus did not need to be in his house to heal his servant. And he says to him, just say the word, and I know it will be done. And then he gives this example, this illustration of why he has the confidence that he does that if Jesus just gives the command, that command will be followed. And he gives the example of his own position in the Roman military. And when he says, I'm a man that has authority and there are men under me. And I know that if I give a command, my command will be followed because of the authority that I have. And I don't necessarily need to see that command followed out, but I trust that it will happen. And what he's saying of Jesus is, Jesus, look, I know that you have this authority. And so I know that if you give a command, it will be followed. Whatever you say will come to pass. And it says that Jesus marveled over this. Jesus was amazed at this man's faith. That's something that should cause us pause. To sit and to say, whoa, this caused Jesus himself to be amazed. He hadn't even seen this kind of faith in Israel, it says. Throughout Jesus' public ministry, you know, all Israel is expecting the Messiah to come at some point. And they're thinking it's going to be somebody big, somebody that has military power, somebody that's over the top, right? And Jesus gains this following. And he's saying audacious things, and he's doing amazing things, these amazing miracles. And he draws these great crowds but so often in Jesus' public ministry, we see these great crowds not gathering just to see Jesus, but what they're doing is actually seeing if what they've heard about Jesus is true. Can he actually heal the way people say he can heal? Does he actually say the things that people say he says? And what Jesus is used to happening in his ministry is for people to come to him and to see him and to experience him, not out of a trust of him, but with a desire to test him, to see if it's true. And the centurion doesn't do that. Instead of first testing Jesus to see if he's true. You see, he didn't send the Jewish elders to Jesus to see if he could do it. 
He sent the elders because he believed that Jesus could do it. And when he stopped Jesus from coming into his house, it was because he believed that Jesus didn't even need to be there. He believed 100% that he could. And that's what it means to have faith, is to have an unwavering confidence that Jesus is able to do what he says he can do. Not to test him, but to trust him. There is no evidence in this passage to suggest that this centurion has ever met Jesus. And there's no evidence to suggest that he ever will. That's the amazing part about his faith. In John chapter 20, there's an account after Jesus has rose from the dead and he's appearing to his disciples. There's, a, there's an account of one of his apostles that doesn't believe it. His name's Thomas. And forever after this passage, he will always be known to the church as Doubting Thomas. Because even though the witness of all of his closest friends are telling him that Jesus has risen from the dead, he says, I will not believe it until I see him with my own eyes. Until I'm able to put my hand into his pierced side. And I'm able to put my fingers into the holes in his hands where the nails were. And in classic Jesus fashion, he just appears out of thin air. And he's like, Thomas, here I am. Will you believe now? Put your hand in my side. Stick your fingers through the holes in my hands. And Jesus famously says, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. In Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1, we have the famous, what you might think of as the definition of what faith is. It says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. By its very nature, faith is hard because it is not the assurance of things that you already have. And it's not the conviction of things that you have plenty of evidence for. It's by nature something that is difficult to believe, something that calls you out of your comfort zone to believe. It's difficult. It's hard. But faith is the key ingredient if you are going to experience the mercy of God. Without faith, there is no mercy for you, no matter how humble you are. No matter how much you realize you are a sinner, if you are not able to put your faith in Jesus and his ability to forgive you, there is no mercy for you. I want you to turn in your Bible now to the book of Galatians. After Luke, there is John. And then there's Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. And we come to Galatians. Galatians chapter 2. In this book that Paul is writing to a group of churches that he had previously planted, he's following up with them and talking to them because he's heard about this issue. There's a problem that's happening in these churches, and that's this. They are leaving the sound doctrine that he had given to them, that they can be saved by faith. And they're starting to trust in other things. And so look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Paul says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. 
So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So there was a word that occurred a couple of times in that verse, and it's justified. The situation that every single person in this room is in is this. We are created by God. God is our creator. And as our creator, he has authority and rule over us because we are his creation. The same way that you as a parent have rule and authority over your own children. And so as God's creation and he is our ruler, he has put over us a standard to follow, to live up to. He says, be holy as I am holy. We are to imitate God and to imitate and be a reflection of his holiness and his perfection. The problem is we don't do that. We have something called sin. At some point in every single one of our lives, we have fallen short of the glory of God. Whereas we are supposed to reflect it, we fall short of it. And as a result, being under God's authority, one day we will all stand before him to determine whether or not we are just or unjust, guilty or not guilty. And the one who is declared as justified is the one who is not guilty, the one who is cleared, the one who God looks on with favor and allows into his kingdom. But our problem is this, is that we have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And because of that, we do deserve God's judgment and God's wrath. And the issue that Paul's addressing here in Galatians 2 is this, is that there, there is a temptation to believe that for you to be justified and made right in God's eyes is by what he calls works of the law. What is that? Let's try to understand that for just a second. The reality for us is this, and I want to speak to you in these next several minutes very soberly and in a way that might offend you. Because of where you live in this country, and because of when you live in this country, in the American South, you are going to be tempted to accept and adopt a Christianity that requires no faith of you. It's called moralism. What you're going to be tempted to accept is a form of Christianity that says, all I have to do to be a Christian is to believe in God and follow a few moral norms. I don't cuss, drink, smoke, or chew, or hang around those who do. You ever heard that? It sounds silly and you're laughing, but so many people actually think that's what it means to be a Christian. To live your life in a way that is morally right, but the rest of your life, and this is, this is what we have encountered specifically in the region where we live, in the American South, what is so popularly referred to as American, as, as Christianity, is not Christianity at all. It's a combination of two things. It's a combination of true Christianity and this idea that we call the American dream. And what you end up with is a version of Christianity that causes you to not have faith at all. Because all your Christianity is, is believing in God and living by a few moral norms. But the rest of your life is spent pursuing the American dream. And before you believe that the American dream is pursuing money and wealth, 
That is not the American dream. The American dream is pursuing comfort, control, and pleasure in your life. That is the American dream. Something that never takes you out of your comfort zone. That you always feel fine. You're never living in fear, but rather you always have a confidence. Having a control. For goodness sakes, we're Americans. We value our independence and our ability to control our own life and our own destinies. That's what we value. And we value pleasure more than anything else. I want to do whatever makes me happy. And that is the kind of Christianity that we encounter so often here in the American South. Being a Christian is believing in God and following moral norms, but the rest of my life is spent pursuing control, comfort, and pleasure. And the minute that something threatens one of those things, you tuck tail and run. The minute that something threatens the, con the control in your life, the minute that something begins to assert authority over you and tell you what you should do when you do not want to do that thing, i.e. the Bible or the church, if the collective church around you as your church family is coming to you and saying that you are living in danger, that is an authority exerted over you for your good. And our response as Americans is to tuck tail and run and to be offended by that. How dare you try to take my independence from me? How dare you, Bible, tell me how I should live my life? It takes faith to trust and to give away authority to somebody else in your life. To believe that they actually know what's best for you. To believe that scripture actually knows what's best for you. If your comfort in your life is ever threatened, our knee-jerk response is to run away. If there's ever a situation that causes us Fear or anxiety or distress, run, danger. The American dream light is going off in our heads saying, I should not have to put myself in that situation. That's bad for me. Sharing the gospel and putting myself in an awkward conversation causes me fear. Therefore, I'm not going to do it. But what it actually is, it is a, it's a call from God for you to have faith that he is in control in the midst of your fear. Faith is what overcomes fear. And if something ever threatens your pleasure, your pursuit of happiness, you say, that must not be what's best for me. If God is ever at the point where he's leading you through a season of suffering... The American dream mindset in us says, well, that must not be what God has for me. 